0: No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com.
1: A lot of times, if you don't have teamwork, those issues that come up, they can just kill a project. And so you really need that cooperation. You really need people pulling together to get beyond them and keep the momentum moving forward on the project.
2: And I will take away from that. Using consultants as a resource and not considering them as just they do their thing. You know, it's really asking questions and and trying to get as much out of them to really understand the bigger problem at a whole.
0: This is detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Cherise Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voices you heard in our opening were our guests, Jeffrey Murphy, partner, and Zach Poole, senior associate from Murphy, Burnham & Buttrick, or MBB, architects in New York City. Jeffrey Murphy, a founding partner at MBB, brings conceptual clarity and environmental responsibility to his award-winning design work. As partner in charge, he has led the firm's development of buildings and campuses that enrich people's lives and create a sustainable future. Zach Poole, Senior Associate at MBB, manages complex design projects from concept development through construction. Experienced in both the pragmatic and artistic dimensions of architecture, he led the design and consultant teams through the six-year restoration and renovation of Trinity Church Wall Street. You guessed it. The project we are going to chat about today is Trinity Church Wall Street at 89 Broadway, New York City. Before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com/podcast. Located at Broadway and Wall Street, Trinity Church is an active Episcopal church with a deep history. In 1697, a little over 70 years after the Dutch settled New York as a trading post known as New Amsterdam, Trinity Church was granted a charter by King William III of England. Since then, Trinity has been an important part of New York City. Today, Trinity Church and St. Paul's Chapel, just a few blocks north, are the cornerstones of Trinity Church Wall Street, a growing and vibrant Episcopal community. In 2017, Trinity Church Wall Street began an extensive restoration and renovation encompassing the church interiors and the surrounding terraces and grounds.
1: I started working at Trinity Church about 12 years ago when I did a master plan. The building had not been really fully restored in in 60 years or so, and it was in really challenging. There was a lot of deferred maintenance. It was in some states of disrepair. There had just been, you know, 150 years of accumulated stuff that had gotten added to the building. And, you know, because there wasn't a formal program to of stewardship of the building, they really were sort of playing a game of just, you know, something would happen, they'd fix it. Something would happen five years later, they'd fix it. Maybe someone else would fix the same thing. And so over the years, you you got this sort of layering of, in some cases, not great repairs and inconsistent repairs. And so when we came to the building, when we did the first master plan, it really was to address some really basic, basic issues, like hardware on doors and, you know, fixing some organizational issues within the building. Fast forward about six years, there was a new leadership that came in and it was William Luffer who was the new rector and, and Philip Jackson, the new vicar. And they decided that they wanted to take a more proactive approach to the stewardship of this building. And so we, we did a revision to the master plan and really looked at some serious goals for how they would occupy this building. The first goal that emerged was really this interest in turning the building back to a place of focused on worship. Before, over the years, there were some spaces that had become almost multi-purpose spaces, and there were spaces that were designed in a very kind of utilitarian way that architecturally didn't really jive with the beauty of the sanctuary. So, that was one thing, essentially enhancing worship and making sure that that could happen. The next thing was really thinking about humanism. How do you make this building just really great for people to be in? How do you address issues like, you know, the fact that the building wasn't fully handicapped accessible, the fact that, you know, when you sat in a pew, you couldn't read your program because there was not enough light, the fact that it was noisy, you know, the acoustics weren't ideal because you heard so much outdoor city noise the pews were stiff and a straight back. And so, we actually looked at ways that we could really improve the human condition. The third thing was really important to the leadership at Trinity Church, really rooting any change we did. They were very concerned rooting it in, in historic precedents. So, they were very concerned about, hey, we've got this amazing artifact, this building, and we can't afford to just do any old thing to it. We really need to look at the history of this building and we we actually looked at a lot of you know what Upjohn had done and really tried to sort of consider his design aspirations for the project and really go back to to those as a as a way to measure design interventions and then finally sustainability was of course a, a very important part of this where you know everything from you know the protective glazing that we put on the stained glass to the insulation we put in the attic to how we treated the doors to how we increased duct size at the HVAC system really had an impact on the energy performance of this building and and trying as hard as we could to increase that i'll say that you know one of the things that was so amazing about the initial planning project with our client was just how open and receptive they were to, you know, making a lot of these fundamental changes in the building and really recognizing, you know, the importance of good stewardship of this building and, and, and sort of resetting the dial so that from moving forward, you know, this building would continue to be in good shape and not having to do such a big project down the line again. So, that's sort of how we got into the project. And and sort of how we established the priorities for the project, and sort of got into the, basically then got into a design process that was really keeping those four priorities in the four. You know, Trinity Church, if you're in downtown in the financial district, it is a complete oasis among all these other bigger financial buildings. It's this really soaring Gothic architecture. If you look down Wall Street, you see Trinity Church right on axis with Wall Street, it's really soaring architecture. It's just beautiful. But not only that, you know, there's a sizable, it's, it, it sits within a sizable graveyard, both to the north and to the south. Luminaries like Robert Fulton and Alexander Hamilton and, and other New Yorkers, famous New Yorkers from the early days are buried there. But it really is an absolute oasis in this sort of high building desert. And people from, not only from the residential community, but from the office community come and hang out in the the yards, their seating. It's its incredibly verdant there. It's just an amazing asset to that part of town. So, you know, not only we are we talking about an institution that's been there since the late 1600s and all that comes with that, but you've got this amazing architecture and then you have this amazing landscape surrounding it that really just almost defines that part of downtown
0: Manhattan. As Jeff mentioned, the architect for the existing building was Richard Upjohn, a British-born American architect who immigrated to the United States and became most famous for his Gothic Revival churches.
2: Richard Upjohn was actually a builder by trade. He was born in the UK, came to the US, and Trinity Church, the church that stands there now is a third iteration of the church. And there was a large fire after the second one, and he was brought on to help rebuild it and convince Trinity's vestry that it should be torn down and rebuilt. And I think partially that was so he could get the commission. And actually, there's a great story about Upjohn. When he finished the church, he wanted to put a, a gilded crucifix cross on the top of the steeple. The church was very adamant not to. He had the workers put it on top and told them to instantly take down the scaffolding afterwards. And that's why it's still there now, which I think is a great story. But what's interesting about Upjohn is that afterwards, he, he designed a number of churches throughout the Northeast, but then became one of the co-founders of the AIA and, and became a, was a president of the AIA for a little while. So I think that's a very interesting sort of chapters in his life, you know, going from a master builder in England to now becoming you know founder and president of the AIA in the US.
0: The first Trinity Church building was a modest rectangular structure with a gambrel roof and small porch. The second church building was 200 feet tall and longer and wider than its predecessor. Finally, the third and current iteration introduced a soaring Gothic Revival spire surmounted by a gilded cross that, at the time, dominated the skyline of Lower Manhattan. Built in 1846, the church was designated as an historic landmark. This would be its first large-scale renovation in 60 years.
2: This project happened at an interesting point in Trinity's history. Downtown Manhattan had always been a commercial district. And in the last 10 years, more and more residential buildings were going up. And I think Trinity really saw this as a great opportunity to become a parish to have a parish within the church. They were always considered themselves a parishless church. So Jeff's point about really sort of underst- them understanding that the artifact that they had and had it in the responsibility of keeping it, but also they have to respond to the growing population that in their congregation is growing as a result. So I think it was just a perfect timing for all those aspects coming together.
0: As part of this effort, Trinity's leadership moved community programs to neighboring buildings. MBB's mandate then was to enhance and refocus the church's role as a house of worship and a performing arts space.
2: The church as a whole is about 30,000 square feet. It's not enormous, but it's not small. It has a sort of a standard central nave with side aisles with a chancel and altar at the end, which was built, like we said, in 1846. It has been added on a number of times over the years. In 1877, they added onto the back of the church, like a small addition. In 1912, they added to the north, they added a chapel, a small chapel. And then in the 1960s, they added onto the other side of the church, a structure that housed a lot of miscellaneous program. There might have been a museum in there at one point. There was a gift shop. There was, there was a little bit of everything. And so, as a result, you have this sort of magoration of like all these different structures of different time periods put together. And then the the nave, as Jeff had mentioned, was in disrepair, you know. So that was sort of what we started with. It's always good to sort of start with before and after, because I think the success of the project was, is it looks as if it's always been there. And we were really charged at looking at everything, you know, touching every surface, questioning everything, and making sure that, asking the question, why is it there? Should it still be there? Should it be decluttered? And that was really what we addressed during that master plan phase, is really sort of establishing that scope you know we looked at everything from the stained glass windows to some of the decisions that are made in the 1960s you know to the flooring session, some of the the chancel floor where the altar was was added on with wood parquet floor for some odd reason you know so we looked at everything you know we and start from square one understanding what can we do to best support their needs their current needs because there was not a time of influence that so we could say, we should bring this whole church back to 1846 because of those additions. So we really had to start thinking about what made the most sense. And I think what ended up being was we took each area and made a decision, if it's an historical element, this should be brought back to a certain era and not be so dogmatic about it has to be this and be a little more realistic about it. With the goal of, of the church sort of meeting their current needs. It's a, it's a building. It needs to live with, with the congregation, with the clergy of today and not just be stuck in, you know, a certain time period.
1: You know, for instance, we ended up bringing back the procession. So a procession used to happen from the sacristy to the back of the church to start a service, right? So, and that would happen by actually going from the sacristy outside, going to the back of the church and coming inside. But the sacristy was actually farther away. So we moved the sacristy closer and we actually added this modern awning, glass and steel awning that connected the sacristy with the back of the church so that on a, on a rainy or inclement day of inclement weather, they could easily get back and forth. We ended up adding uh, what's called the wrap room, which is sort of a, you know, sort of a green room, if you will, or a place where someone getting, getting married might might wait prior to a service. We actually found this wonderful space called the vestry room. And behind the altar, they had put a couple of bathrooms back there and, a, and another office and some some uh, miscellaneous storage. When we took that all apart, we actually found this extraordinary room could exist back there. It's, they sort of use it for their leadership meetings sometimes, but that room just didn't exist. And then on the second level of the Manning Wing, the 1950s edition. We added these amazing music practice rooms. There's a, a studio up there for their for their television broadcasting. But basically, based the design off of some performance spaces in Lincoln Center, and gave them a you know a first rate choir practice room up there. So we were able to again, take spaces that were sort of in the wrong place and not necessarily serving worship or their music program and really make them purpose-built to support those things.
0: The charge was to advance three goals at once. The application of high-performance glazing and insulation to help conserve the church's historic stained glass windows, quiet the air handling systems, and dramatically improve energy performance. Beginning with a master plan to guide the intricate renovation process, MBB balanced historic preservation techniques with modern infrastructure and accessibility requirements. This was a massive endeavor. MBB needed to bring everyone to the table and leverage all expertise.
1: The first is that just really understanding that to do an integrated design, that everything is interconnected. We had this really fantastic design team that included about 18 consultants. I had Zach and my partner, Mary Burnham, and a number of people in our office. We had this great client that rounded out the design team. And really by putting all of the consultants in a room regularly, we came up with solutions that just would never have happened otherwise. So, I'll give you an example. The folks from the music department came to us and said, we love the acoustics here. Don't change a thing. And that was a tall order because there was a lot of work that we had to do. So, we worked with this really fine consultant threshold out of Chicago to really get our arms around the acoustics of the space. What we also realized was that, so we were going to fix the stained glass and put protective glazing on the stained glass well that had an impact on on acoustics and you know we were going to change the HVAC and increase the ductwork and that was going to have a profound impact on on the acoustics so we were able to sort of have these conversations and and in some ways achieve all of these changes but keep in mind that some of these things how one area like acoustics could impact all these other Areas, You know, a good example of the protective glazing was, it not only uh, protected the stained glass itself, but we got all of these huge benefits for tightening the building. And so really understanding that every sort of area that we were dealing with had this ripple effect on a bunch of others, and we could leverage that and, you know, with protective glazing achieved three other goals of the project, took a little bit for that all to gel during the design process. The second thing that was a really amazing addition to the project was this steel and glass awning. And these are steel support columns that rise up and splay in two cantilevered arms that support an inch and a half thick laminated glass panels. And we sort of were riffing on sort of flying buttress architecture. And it's a freestanding element that doesn't touch the building. Now, this is a pretty heavy-duty modern element to add to an 1800s building. And we initially made the argument that we really wanted this element to sort of disappear against the building. And I think if you look at it, you go and visit the church, you'll see that it kind of does that. From Broadway, if you look, the color of the columns are sort of meld into the brownstone of the church, and the glass is glass, it's transparent. And it's just a very sort of, we think, sensitive way of of addressing this problem. We got a lot of support from the community board, Landmarks Preservation Commission really loved it. And it ended up being a very, very good solution to this issue of how do you create an awning, a new new element to this existing building. But, you know, it was one that, you know, wasn't obvious in the beginning. And it really became, you know, a, a very special part of the design through a long process.
2: The design of the chancel or the modification of the chancel, I think, was incredible in the sense that I mentioned before how there was a parquet floor finish at one point, and it was multiple levels. And this whole idea of accessibility and making the spaces, even the chancel, be accessible to someone, it used to be a number of steps. We made it all one level, and by doing that, we had to modify the existing architectural fabric that the chancel touched, because in some cases, walls got eight inches taller, other times they get eight inches shorter, to create a level surface. And then the challenge was the altar, the historic altar was affixed to the reredos, which is the sculptural element in the back of the altar. And they wanted to be able to lead a service from behind that altar. So we pulled that historic altar off the wall, put it in the middle of the chancel, Redesign the back half of the altar so it, it looks complete. And then infill the meridos where the altar was once with mosaics that match and look exactly like what's existing there. So In the end, it looks like we never touched anything, but it's a nice, clean, flat surface. All the stone was sourced from the exact same location that the original stone was sourced from. So, it's a seamless match. And then we had a this design challenge of how do we physically get someone from the nave floor up the six or seven odd steps onto the chancel. And we found a space behind one of the carved choir seats on the sides of the chancel that we could put a lift in. And by modifying these choir seats, you could pull out a seat and there's a hidden door behind it so that one could open that door, go up the lift and onto the chancel seamlessly. And what's nice about that is that it's not in your face, but it's a very obvious path that someone in the sitting in the pews could look at and say, oh, there is a path for me to potentially be part of the clergy down the road. You know, the pulpit, which once used to be attached to a column and you had to walk up a few set of steps to get to it, very sort of a typical thing within a church, we engage it into the chancel. So, it's still an element, but it allows someone in a wheelchair to roll right into the, the pulpit and lead a service from there. So, it's all very accessible. But it's very subtle in the way in which it was done. And I think that was the figuring out how to articulate all those elements and still have them tie into the existing historical fabric was just incredible challenge, but a lot of fun.
1: When we came to the church, we knew from working at St. Patrick's Cathedral that there probably was a a sort of blocking pattern on the plaster uh, walls and ceiling of the sanctuary that would try to, um, Look like stone. And we were, were, we're working with building conservation associates who are, you know, our amazing restoration consultants. And they, they took a paint chip, a deep paint chip of the plaster and went into that with a microscope and figured out what the colors were on the wall back in the 1840s. And basically we confirmed that it was, the paint was intended to look like Groundstone, which is what the the church is made out of. Now, what probably happened, and this the same thing happened at St. Patrick's Cathedral. They they originally designed a stone building, but that required a lot of buttresses on the outside. It required a lot of support to support a, a nave ceiling out of stone. And by going to plaster, they were actually able to save quite a bit of money. So the plaster w- had always intended to look like stone. We found through this analysis. And so, the challenge was to actually get to that point and make it look like stone in 2020. So, we worked very closely with the painters, my partner, Mary Burnham, who's an amazing colorist, was able to work closely with the painters to come up with a pattern of four or five colors that that closely matched the brownstone. We also discovered that the, the paint joint, the, the line to show the joints was actually this beautiful pink color. And so, you know, imagine these sort of brown, different varying colored blocks, and this, you know, delineated by these pinkish joints. And that's what we ended up Going with, but to get there, you know, we just spent months and months of doing first mock-ups on small pieces of cardboard and then moving to bigger portions of the wall, and then actually doing a full bay mock-up of what what that painting scheme would look like. If you go into the space, you have to look to see that it's the painted scheme and not, not really a, a stone on the upper walls and at the nave ceiling. You know, we think that that's one of the more successful parts of this project.
2: Even within the plaster walls, we added in uh, dusting of mica to give it a sparkle to make it look like stone. And even the lower levels, adding in some gesso, it's a little bit of texture, just so it doesn't feel like a flat painted surface. And whenever I give tours at Trinity, it's very hard to tell the delineation between where the stone column starts and the plaster is above. And I think that was a you know, success to the project.
0: Now, I thought I had heard it all, but when I say MBB had to leverage all experts for this project, I am not kidding.
2: So we had an organ consultant that spoke the language of the organ makers that could help so we could understand what their needs and requirements are. And these organs range in the size from a small little Baroque organ that, a very simple organ to gallery organ which i think is 8,000 pipes i mean th- these pipes go from 30 foot tall wood pipes down to a four inch metal pipe you know so within that range it's it's an enormous instrument that's probably 40 50 feet tall it's an amazing instrument and it's, and it's being installed right now and be voiced and finished probably at the end of 2024 so with that in mind it was a very elaborate project we had everything from structural engineers to the organ consultants, and they were all talking together because everything was intertwined. You know, and to get that fully integrated design that we we're looking for, every consultant had to be talking to each other. And we got a lot of resistance at first, we got all the consultants around a table together and talking. And I would have each one of them present the work that they're working on right now. And at first, it's just like, oh, this is a waste of time. But it was amazing some of the stuff that came out of those conversations that no one had ever thought about prior. You know, we had two consultants that never really had worked together talking to each other. We had an archaeologist as a consultant because we we're doing so much work in and around the outside of the building within the graveyards. We need someone there to make sure that during digging that they're sifting through every piece of dirt, making sure there are not any remains. You know, Trinity Church has been a graveyard since 1600. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of mark graves, but then there aren't, and so we wanted to make sure that the proper protocol was set, and that if human remains were found, it could be re by by the church into a, into a safe spot. So, you know, we had our civil engineer working with archaeologists, who's then also working with the excavator. So it was just putting people in a room that never worked together, but getting sort of the the, the best possible outcome out of it. I think BCA Building Conservation Associates were amazing partners and really working with us to identify the restoration scope and try to figure out the proper repair. We had everything, for, like Jeff mentioned, the plaster. We had uh, historic stone carvings, wood carvings, everything above. You know had to be looked at and addressed. In the, what, how do we resolve this issue? We have a missing element. Is it recarved or is it cast? And are we making a deliberate attempt to recreate it? Or are we saying that we know this element was lost and let's put back something so a future campaign knows it's not original? So, all those conversations are happening constantly and working together as a team. Our lighting designer, Melanie Freundlich, was incredible working with her. And this church originally was incredibly dark. One of our main goals was to lighten this up. And and how do we embed lighting into the building to enhance the architecture without making it you know, all about the light source? And working with her, designing these light sources, and then more importantly, designing these new pendant light fixtures that had never been in the church before. And that's a big change, you know, to go from a church that had bad lighting to a church that has great lighting, but now we're hanging these pretty large four foot tall pendants. I think there's 16, 16 of them down the center nave. And working with them back and forth with the electrician, the electrical consultant, as well as electrician and understanding what is all required to get this fixture to hang, you know, 30 feet above in the air. So it was incredibly collaborative across the board.
1: We also had Siami, who was the construction manager during construction, and they were just sort of first grade and really brought their A game to this whole project. And so they were they were really meaningful collaborators and really helped with a lot of problem solving day in and day out. And then you know I go back to our client. You know we, we were working with Reverend Leffler, Reverend Jackson, and then later Michael Bird. Who's now the vicar, and then we had two sort of folks on the ground, Luke Johns and Dave Maddox, who were just real facilities professionals who could make decisions and really keep the project moving so when we say when we say this, you know probably everybody talks about a team effort, but I think in this project it was a real team effort, and you know we had We had construction meetings in Siami's office down the street every week, and there could be 24 people in those meetings. So we were doing a lot of coordination, and I think we we were able to get the best out of our consultants. And because this was such an important project, and because people saw it as sort of a privilege to be on it, we just got everybody's A game. I think it really shows in the work.
0: One of the most important roles of an architect is to mitigate uncertainty. With lots of input and moving parts, MBB was diligent in bringing the client along in the process and providing valuable information to make clear and informed decisions along the way.
2: We spent a lot of time putting together full scale mock ups of elements. And that light fixture, the pendant light fixture, which is four feet tall, it's a challenge designing something that's going to be 30 feet in the air. So, how do you, you know, what, what is the right proportion and how does it fit within the space? and? We built probably 10 or 15 full scale mock ups in cardboard, put lights in the inside and hoisted them up into space and tried to figure out with the client, okay, what does that look like? How does that, the level of detail you can look at in front of your face is great, but when it's 30 feet up in the air, does that look different? And I think that was huge because they were part of the process. They could understand, you know, some of the decisions we're making and see the finished, well, what the finished product could look like. We were able to, Go out to Germany where the glass awning was built, and they built a full-scale mock-up and actually had a print, a screen built of the uh, church behind it, so you could see the backdrop of where it could be. And that was the first time that the our client group could look and say, "Oh, now we get it." And they got instant buy-in after that, you know, because like you're saying before, sometimes it's a little too conceptual. And what we have in our heads does not match what everyone else is is thinking. So those mock-ups were incredibly crucial to get some of these, some might say, challenging elements to get approved. One other factor that really
1: helped us, Fred Bland, who's a partner at uh, Bayer Blender Bell, was on the vestry, and he was really a trusted advisor of William Luffler, Reverend Luffler, and Reverend Jackson. He helped, in some ways... It was cheating a little bit because he helped pave the way. He's an architect. He, he really spoke our language and yet had the inequivocal uh, trust of, of leadership. And to have someone like that was an incredible asset. And, you know, he really helped us, you know, on some of the critical design issues like the lighting and like the awning really helped, helped us push some of these things over the edge. And we're really grateful for his participation like that.
0: Having this type of client engagement in the process, including construction, provided added benefits. I mentioned
1: Reverend Jackson, who was the vicar initially when we started the project. He's now the rector. He was really great to work with, and he was so fascinated by the construction process. He really hadn't been involved with a project of this magnitude before, but he was all in and just really enthusiastic about it. And I remember during construction, when they were doing demolition, when they were demolishing the Manning Wing. And all of a sudden, behind these sheetrock walls, there were these beautiful fragments of the original Trinity building, whether they were buttresses or whether they were just details of the building that had been covered up for the last 70 years. And he said, this is just beautiful. How can we cover this up again? So, one of the One of the fun things about the project was sort of taking some of those moments and actually revealing them and putting them in the spaces so that you could understand that this is what was there originally and it was just so interesting that he saw that as you know he saw the opportunity of that and was very excited about revealing
0: that and enabling people to see what was there before The unexpected discovery of hidden architectural elements was a bonus for the project. One of the key elements of the restoration, from the beginning, centered on the historic, brilliantly colored stained glass windows, which art historians consider some of the finest early American stained glass. The glass received a full off-site conservation treatment, while non-historic clear-story windows were redesigned and replaced using contextual precedents.
1: We had from Liberty Stained Glass, Brian Van Van Voorst, and then from on loan from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, we had Drew Anderson, who's a a stained glass conservator and specialist. And then we had on sort of the contractor side, we worked with Feminella, which is a, a company that sort of took in all the work and outsourced it to different different stained glass makers and repairers. And so, the challenge at the building was that we had this pretty important stained glass. So, the stained glass above the altar, above the chancel, we haven't confirmed this, but it may have been some of the earliest stained glass actually made in America. So prior to that, a lot of the stained glass was coming from Germany, from France. And so, this is important stained glass in the history of American stained glass. And then there were at least six or seven other makers that had stained glass in the building. We had another challenge at the Clare Story stained glass, where in the 60s, they had replaced the original with this very, I'm just going to say ugly. It was very deep yellow, ugly stained glass in diamonds. It really darkened the space. So it was so saturated with this very dark yellow that it really made the space darker. And so we made a decision to replace that and to put back, we actually found evidence of a quarry, a a diamond that had originally been in the Claire story stained glass. And then we went through this very lengthy process of trying to replicate that quarry, but also show variation in the different quarries. That again, was a sort of like a, a six month process of Of coming up with small panels and then moving to a full lancet which is one of the large tall windows and doing then series of different schemes for how that how the the quarries would be arranged and the different colors that might be used and so all of the different kinds of stained glass really either had a different treatment for repairing it in some cases replacing stained glass And in all cases, putting back protective glazing or putting installing protective glazing. We did something very interesting at the American-made glass above the chancel. We did a process of protective glazing called isothermal treatment, where you actually take the stained glass and you hold it off the stone, almost like a piece of art. And then you really let the protective glazing carry the day in terms of the thermal barrier. But it's a way, especially with with stained glass that's been damaged by humidity and other factors, to actually get air uh, circulating between the protective glazing and and the stained glass itself. We had another just amazing, just so much fun part of this project, which was we helped to run an international competition for a new stained glass window above the east entry of the church. The winner of that competition was Thomas Denny. He's a British artist, and he's worked on 800-year-old cathedrals, but he also has done these really quite beautiful modern interpretations of Bible passages. And so, the church picked the parable of talents, which was a reminder to them of some things they wanted to consider every day as they entered the church. And Thomas Denny came up with this just remarkable, beautiful stained glass window that actually was just installed this past fall. It's backlit with LED lights, just a beautiful thing to look at down from Wall Street or from Broadway.
2: As these windows, all these windows came out, were taken out and brought to studios. They were broken apart or pulled apart on light tables, and looked at, and each repair that was done previously was looked at, analyzed, and sometimes redone or kept, you know, so everything was looked at in a fine tooth comb. In some windows, we found that 80% of the window was bad replacements, and that just became a new window. Where others were, it was good, just bad cracks or bad missing elements. So it was really taking case-by-case basis and in, in looking at these windows, and they look great as a result. You know, there's colors shining on the floor of the church that never were there before. It was, it's just cleaned. It's, they're, better, they're just better windows as
0: a whole. An interesting result of the stained glass restoration was its contribution to the energy performance efforts.
1: You know, the stained glass had missing, we call them quarries, these little diamonds that, or in some cases, chunks of quarries missing. And so effectively, you have this very thin piece of glass at all of these windows, but then you had big openings in in those windows to boot. So by simply repairing the stained glass and then in some cases where there wasn't one putting on protective glazing, which is a you know, about a quarter inch piece of laminated glass that has some performance properties, you're doing a lot towards tightening up the building and making it leak less.
0: The stained glass is now protected from the elements by unobtrusive high performance exterior glazing, allowing for a vented cavity to prevent condensation. The glazing also quiets the interior, allowing worshippers and concertgoers to enjoy subtle vocals and three new pipe organs. The restoration also included the central nave and the modification of the chancel, the elevated area surrounding the altar. Above the nave's restored stone arches, newly painted trompe-l'oeil plaster walls simulate cut-stone blocks following Richard Upjohn's original design. Balancing historic preservation techniques with modern infrastructure proved to be a challenge in more ways than one.
2: We installed a brand new electrical service into the church. And not only does it have sort of standard electrical needs, but it also has a state-of-the-art broadcast room. So there's the AVIT component and fiber lines. And we had to find pathways for All this conduit to go throughout the church and one of the first things we wanted to make sure is that you couldn't see any of the conduit so we have on the columns we have speakers we have cameras we have fire strobes and we want all the the conduit hidden and at the beginning of the process we we said well let's figure out a way to route it all from the top down so instead of the easy solution is let's go up to the base of the column but you're going to see that conduit and one of the benefits of that plaster finish was that there was, you know, a cavity, three, four inches of cavity behind, so we could use it as a perfect chase to run and easily repair the plaster where we had to. But that's for like one or two pieces of conduit. Through the, the middle of the nave, we had a trench that was five feet wide by three feet deep, stacked with conduit. And in trying to find pathways through this church that's been Renovated every, you know, 50 years of everything, everything's a slightly different uh, structural system. So finding pathways and creating openings in old masonry walls with steel sleeves to create the structural support was a feat in itself. I felt like for a good six months, all we talked about was electrical conduit. And then we had to run the conduit up through where this future organ, the 8,000 pipe organ I mentioned, and working closely with the organ makers trying to find, what we called the no fly zones. Because they hadn't quite developed the design of the organ yet. They knew generally what it is, but we didn't know where it was. And we had to get conduit from the ground up to the attic. And where can we go? And Where are the bends? And how many times can we make a 90-degree turn before we need to have another pull box? You know, down to that level of detail really affected the design of a lot of these spaces because it all had to be hidden. So where can we integrate it completely so it goes away but still you know, meet the needs or the requirements, better yet, of the design?
0: The formerly dark interior is gently illuminated by custom-designed LED pendants, clear story sconces, and discreet ceiling lights. Theatrical lighting enables the church to record and broadcast worship services to their virtual audience. MBB Scope also included improvements to the exterior, including accessibility upgrades to the building and grounds, making the site more welcoming than ever.
1: When we came to the project, They had recently done some work on some of the roofs, some of the metal roofs, and they had over years done repointing and work on some of the stone. But we picked a line about 35 feet high and essentially bought both cleaning and repointing of the stone up to that height. We did have some flat roof work that we worked on, certainly worked on some roofs to accommodate the new organ. One of the biggest things we did was actually make, I mentioned make building handicaps cap accessible. We did that by actually putting ramps on either side of the building at the north and south vestibules. And then that came up to the height of the nave. And then, and then on both sides of the north and south side of the church, we connected the vestibule at the east side with the sacristy on the west side. And then on the north side of the building connected the vestibule on on the east with All Saints Chapel to the west. And so these became sort of new landscape elements. They have a sort of bench on them that's friendly to people. And then they serve the purpose of actually creating the height of the church on them to make the access to the building that much easier. Before we started, the yard was not handicap accessible. You couldn't actually get around the church. And so, we actually added ramps, new paved ramps that would enable someone to circumnavigate the church in a wheelchair. In the landscape, we did a lot to improve the pathways. We added lighting. We added earth and replanted the graveyards. And we actually culled some of the trees. Some of the trees were dying. We took them out and we replaced them with new trees. And so, you know, it enabled this landscape that wasn't that verdant to actually be more verdant and beautiful and, and green. So, so that was a what we saw as a big success of this. There were sort of also nitty gritty things like the cast iron fences that were these huge heavy constructions and really important to enclosing the yard in some cases, were, had, had fully deteriorated. So, big sections of them were disassembled and sent down to Alabama to be sandblasted, repainted and restored. There's a wall surrounding the site. We actually re- repaired that wall, in some cases, replacing brownstone and we, we pointed it and, and really just cleaned it up and made it waterproof again we replaced the entire sidewalk on the s- south side of, or on the west side of the building. One of the new things was that now that the parish house was to the west of uh, Trinity Church, the back side of the church actually became kind of a new front of the church because all of those offices were now facing that side of that church. And so, the landscape had not been really thought about. And so, we were able to actually make a terrace in the back of the church and also include new planting and really clean that up, make it a really nice place for for people to be and also make it nice to look at from the parish house across the street. So those are some of the things that we did in the yard. It wasn't the extensive work that went on inside the church, but it ended up being quite a bit of work and I think really improved the quality of the yard.
2: In the process of adding all this hardscape, we started really looking into the stormwater management and where does all the water from the roofs, from the, these terraces, and where does it go? And finding out pretty quickly, it all actually traveled back around the building and then back in through a six or eight inch pipe through the, the building to the sewer. So all this, uh, you know, square footage of hard surface was going back down, squished down to an eight inch pipe which obviously would cause backup and tons of flooding. So we looked in adding in underneath those terraces retention piping, so large 30-inch diameter piping that would just slow down the water going towards the sewer. But of course, as we did that, we found brick vaults that were unknown. So as they're excavating, finding vaults that were not in any maps or any historic drawings, and trying to figure out the pathway for these large pipes still getting the proper length, working around these you know pretty uh, precious things these vaults so those were you know a constant challenges and you know trying to figure out that path and and getting all the people in the room together to figure out where we can move these things and and still get the their performance that we're looking for
0: an extensive project like this is bound to present a few lessons and takeaways
1: you know, one of the things that, that I brought to this project, I for 12 years, I worked on the St. Patrick's Cathedral rejuvenation and actually ran ran the project as a partner in charge for about nine of those 12 years. I learned so much on that project that when we came to this project, yes, things were different, but things were a lot the same. I mean, we, we had building conservation associates, uh, a lot of our consultants that worked with us on the St. Patrick's project came over to this project we built the team around around that team in some ways and i wouldn't discount that previous experience to how it benefited the trinity project and how i could participate in that project and lead the project so that was a really important thing but again you know what i took from the St. Patrick's project and and brought here and we've said it again and again is really just having the right people on the team that can do this level of work but also can bring their commitment and their A game to to the project it's just how crucial that is just building the right team you know sometimes there are just amazing projects out there that that don't get it together because people are working in silos and and not really doing the best work that they can be doing as a result so I know that this bit has been sort of a mantra during, during this conversation, but it's really true. I mean, what I learned from St. Patrick's, what I learned from Trinity is really you've got to have the right people in the room to do exceptional work and to end up with successful projects.
0: I've worked on maybe not the most well-formed teams. I think we all have at one point or another where just all the players didn't quite gel, or maybe an owner wasn't super open-minded. I mean, there's a lot of different things that could make a team not work so effectively together, but I just don't see how you could do a project like this in the way that you have without a really amazing team.
1: The other part of that is that, especially in a project like this, you're ripping apart a building and putting it back together again. Just so much can go wrong. And when stuff goes wrong, you just need people who are operating in good faith. You need people who just are thinking about the greater project as a whole to solve problems and solve the problem, get it behind, you move ahead. A lot of times, if you don't have teamwork, those issues that come up, they can just kill a project. And so, you really need that cooperation. You really need people pulling together to get beyond them and keep the momentum moving forward on the project.
2: I think a lot of it has to do with that flexibility. You know, most of my career has been working on either new buildings or a gut renovation of an existing building where you have a lot of control over what goes back. And in this case, we were stitching in new items into something that's very irregular or very irrational sometimes, and, and you had to be flexible. You had the big idea, and then let's try to figure out how we can make that big idea work in this unique situation. And that's everything from me going back to a a consultant saying we got to look at this a fifth time because it's not quite working. And it's that teamwork. I you know we we've, we've probably said teamwork a thousand times today, but it really really was the only way you could get this project to happen. And I will take away from that is just is really using consultants as a resource and not considering them as just they do their thing. You know it, it's really asking questions and and trying to get as much out of them to really understand the bigger problem at a whole.
0: The Trinity Church Wall Street Restoration and Renovation had unique challenges and opportunities. Integrating modern infrastructure and technology into the historic fabric of the church required meticulous coordination with consultants and the contractors. MBB and the team were successful in preserving and enhancing the building's distinct character for future generations. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. Like, if Zach and Jeff could change one thing about the architecture profession, what would that be?
2: If somehow we could disassociate time and money, and so that like this project we're talking about at Trinity Church, if you know, we had the, the flexibility to design detail everything on site, utilize as much of the experience of the contractors as possible and really come up solutions there rather than having to force maybe solutions that we weren't aware, you know, that we tried or we designed that weren't quite right into an existing condition, that would be great, right? That there wasn't a schedule. And there wasn't money associated with that schedule. I know that's never going to happen, but God, would that be fun. There's so many great things about our profession,
1: about what, what architects do. I think one of the unfortunate things is that we're not a diverse profession. And diversity, equity, and inclusion is a big part of our firm. We're a women-owned business. But we just have failed in trying to make our profession as diverse as it can be. And it's really important to have a wide range of voices, especially when you're designing in the, in the public realm. So, I think that, you know, there are a lot of pipeline ideas about how to increase diversity in architecture. We've made headways with the number of women that are in the profession, but certainly there aren't enough people of color in the architecture profession. And if we really want to have architecture in the future that's meaningful and relevant to all people we need to be making our profession more diverse
0: i couldn't agree more i really enjoyed this conversation with jeff and zach i hope this episode sparks a new idea helps you solve a problem that you've been working through or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination
2: we work with a lot of really interesting mission-driven institutions that do phenomenal work. And if somehow our architecture can create an environment that they can better their mission, then I think we've done a good job. And it's really nice when you hear them say, oh, we had no idea that we could do X, Y, and Z. Now we can because of you know this new space. Or we've added a new division or you know something along that and really increase their their mission just through the architecture that's great i mean that's the best thing i'm a real believer that design really matters
1: that we as architects have the opportunity every day to impact the human experience and make positive sustainable contributions to the built environment when i look at projects i've led including rejuvenations at trinity church and st patrick's cathedral Millions of people's lives are impacted by these buildings. So what we do to these projects and how we are stewards of them has real gravity. Designing projects in the public realm has a lot of responsibility tied to it, but it's such an incredible privilege. And you know, we're so lucky to be working in this sort of area of architecture.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, Rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try Rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.